Welcome to Something for the Turbo, the new weekly podcast brought to you by Unfound, the global platform for the travel-loving cyclist. Welcome to the show. We've got another good one for you today. But before we get on to that, I just wanted to say thank you very much to everyone who's been listening. Please do subscribe if you haven't yet. And please, if you're enjoying the shows, tell your cycling mates. Spread the word. We've been growing steadily over the last few weeks, but it'd be great to keep that momentum going. So do pass the pod if you can. Today, I'm joined by Chris Sidwells. Chris is an award-winning author, journalist, cycling journalist who's traveled the world following races and interviewing cyclists for many years now. He also has a publishing company, Cycling Legends, and he's also Tom Simpson's nephew, which I found out during the conversation so clearly hadn't done my research (laughs) but it's a really interesting conversation Chris is a a fantastic storyteller he's got some brilliant stories from yesteryear and modern cycling as well so we hope you enjoy the conversation and without further ado here's Chris for you Chris thanks for joining me how are you getting on I'm great we're doing okay I mean um, life's changed a little bit I'm not going to bike races and I'm not going around uh, knocking on cyclist door and uh, doors uh, doing what I was doing before, but I'm finding enough to do, and we've we, we've got more books uh, that I'm writing, and I've managed to adapt to the current situation, and uh, just like everybody else, trying to live day to day, and then and have some sort of plan for for the future as well. Yeah, well, whenever we get out the other side of this. So before we sort of crack on talking about what what you're doing at the moment, it'd be good to sort of rewind a little bit and and find out a little bit more about your sort of background and how you got into being such a, a prolific cycling uh, writer. But firstly, have you been managing to get out on your bike quite a bit during lockdown? I am, yes. I must be one of the few people that's lost weight uh, during lockdown. I mean, I, I do a lot, spend a lot of dry, time driving. I drive maybe 30, 36,000 miles a year. Um, wow. And eating rubbish. <laughs> and, and is that just for interviewing people or is just, that uh, the, the last year i've launched my own publishing business and usually yes it was interviewing and and driving around europe and everywhere to to to, to races and more because i, I specialized my cycling journalism or writing was more to do with interviews and, and and interviewing people or team managers cyclists team staff people like that rather than at the races but there was a lot of writing um driving involved with that uh and then i've launched my own, my own publishing brand cycling legends uh which you can find on www.cyclinglegends.co.uk and we'll get that in the show notes yeah and to get that across to people you're launching something new uh, in anything you have to have either a lot of money to take out a lot of advertising or you take it on the road so I, I've yeah. been taking the books to cafes, you know, being invited. I've got cafe owners and, and shop owners to, to put their shop open for an evening and village halls, a church, theatres. Uh, and we've done these one man shows telling them about the, the book and, and what I'm doing. And then... Um, they buy it fantastic so it's probably been quite nice just to sort of take on it obviously cause it cause some challenges but just to take your foot off the accelerator literally and have a bit of time time at home where exactly are you based i'm based just at the bottom end of south yorkshire right on the south yorkshire north nottinghamshire border near where i was born uh, I was born in Harworth in North Nottinghamshire, and um, I've travelled. I've lived in a lot of different places, but I think I've come back like the salmon, either to spawn or die. I'm hoping it's neither. <laughs> <laughs> well, Yorkshire is such a spectacular part of the world. I absolutely love it. I was up in Harrogate for the Worlds last year, and just the diversity of cycling is. It's just a magic place to ride your bike, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, uh, and I, I was there at the world's most days. Uh, did a lot of talks there. And we also, as Cycling Legends, also does contract publishing. And we, very great feather in our cap, we did the programme for the UCI for Welcome to Yorkshire for the for the 2019 really? World Worlds. Yeah, yeah, we did 146 page. It's a magazine, really. Yeah, I've got um, it. I've got a copy. Well, that's that's ours. That's cycling. You look at the editor. It's Chris Sidwells. That's me and a, a designer from Sheffield called Mark Etchers put that together. And we were hoping to do, we got lined up programs and all sorts of things, one-off magazines, but this stopped it. No racing. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Now tell me, let's, um, let's rewind a little bit. How have you always loved cycling? How did you get into what you're doing now to take us back to the beginning? Well, yeah, I, I grew up in a cycling family. I'm, I'm not giving. Yeah. Uh, my uncle was Tom Simpson. So we, oh, Britain's okay. first. I didn't, I didn't know he was your uncle. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I don't talk about it much. Yes, I do. Actually, people, people who know me, I'll, I'll laugh at that. Um, so he, he comes, he grew up in Haworth. My, my, my mum was one of the three Simpson children that came down from the Northeast. Tom, 
uh, a brother Harry and Rini, my mum. So they were sim- similar in age. So Tom and my mum were always uh, were, were very close. And although I can't remember him, I, I'm, I'm I'm not old enough to remember him a lot. I can remember a glimpse. I was only I was six when he died. So, but he was a massive influence, and the fact that he was talked about, and and I, where other people they're sporting their fathers and their grandfathers would be talking Georgie Best and Bobby Moore and and and, and things like that in in this in the sixties and going into the seventies. Yeah. All our house was on Cotille and Van Steenberg, and I met I, I I went to a track meeting at Fallowfield, and apparently was sat on uh, Rick Van Steenberg's knee. Can't remember it. I was three, four. No way. Um, and I met. A lot of cyclists over the years through that who came to see my grandparents. Gino Bartali actually came to visit. He was in England anyway. He wanted to visit Tom's grave and uh, wanted to to meet the family. So that was a a hazy memory of being nine or ten and him being there with some Scottish friends, actually. Scottish businessmen, as I remember. So, yeah. And so I grew up surrounded by... Cyclists wanted to try to emulate Tom, but I was never good enough. I, I won a few races. I don't think I ever took myself seriously enough as a cyclist. Yeah, um, that's interesting. Yeah. You obviously spent a lot of time with a lot of pros throughout the years, and I'd be quite keen to sort of pick your brains in terms of how you think the sports and evolved and, and how the pros have evolved. But you that's a trait that you've noticed throughout your life, just in terms of how focused and, and serious everyone takes it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I knew from the start that I could never... I knew a lot of kids get into cycling very starry-eyed and they're going to be pros. And I think to myself, yeah, you know, do you know what the life's like? It's yeah, a, it's a hard very life. very hard life. It's It sounds great riding your bike all the time. But you're supposed, yeah. to, you're supposed to produce. There's a lot of pressure on you to produce. And I remember I co-wrote a book with Alan Piper, uh, Piper's Tale, his, his uh, autobiography. And uh, he said one time he, he was in a position where he, he was really going to be possibly winning a classic. And there was a thing in the back of his mind after he, wherever he finished, he got caught. I think it was Milan San Remo. And yeah. it says there was a bit where he was quite, he was relieved in a way because he'd seen the world of pressure. You don't get paid the next rung up for what you've won you get paid for what you're expected to win so it, it's pressure and now it's even more i, I think possibly they're from talking to the riders though they were from years ago they would love the money today but there is more pressure today and it is a very very singular very strange life uh, and you can see the effect it's had on them over the years you know they they come out of it a lot of them come out of it quite bruised some don't some come out of it fine because they're level-headed people. But if there's anything, if you're not 100% solid in your mindset, I'm not going to say mentally, but in your mindset, it, it can be a difficult life and it can be a difficult life afterwards. Yeah, I, I agree. And, I, and I, you say you didn't want to say mentally, but I think absolutely mentally, I think that it's it's a very tough sport on a number of levels but then also I think you see a number of pros struggling with retirement across all professional sports I think it's quite hard to walk away from everything you know at really a relatively young age yeah it is and and of course there's no um you know if you leave the forces there's some sort of two-week course to try and prepare you for civil life there's, there's nothing although I think some of the teams are doing things like that and helping uh, helping the riders make that transition because it's massive integration back well you've lost your identity almost you haven't but that's probably what it must feel like yeah yeah it is uh for a while I know right they've, they've left the scene and they won't watch the Tour of France because they're not there you yeah. know something like that they just won't watch it hard. um and they don't have anything to do with it a lot don't ride their bike um and but they start again when they lose sight of their feet because they put weight on so yeah get back into it. it's interesting i've spoken to and i mentioned it um spoke to yanto last week and a couple of other people I, I the pros i've spoken to who have retired it's quite nice to hear that after a period of time off they then fall in love with cycling again but it takes a bit of time and, and I'm sure it's different for everyone, but it's not instant for a lot of them. No. Um, and I think cycling is something you've got to love. You, you, you're on your own a lot and you're riding your bike a lot and, and it's something you've got to love. And although you might be worn out mentally after being a pro uh, at the top level, you, you, it comes back and that love of the sport never goes away. In Belgium, they call it being, uh, having the, the microbe being infected by cycling. Yeah. And yeah, it does, I, I, gets, I, in your, gets in your blood, gets in your system. It does get in your blood. It does get in your blood. And it's so hard for people that aren't into it to uh, appreciate that. But So obviously you, you were born into pretty much British cycling royalty with, with, with the family. But how, So it's obviously been in your blood from, from day one. But how did you get into sort of following it as, as a journalist, freelance writer, and then having 
produced so many books. What was what was your path? Um, well, I, I went to university. I got. A, I joined the police force. I was I was quite successful in the police force for a while. And uh, right. without going into it, I fe- I fell out. Uh, maybe I fell out of love with the police force. Um, and I was in a situation where my wife had a really good. I was getting more and more miserable. And um, my wife had a really good job, so I was in a situation where I'd done a certain length of time, and I could yeah. make a career switch. So. I'd always wanted to write about cycling, and she yeah. she had a, a her own business. Sort of worked for me for a while. Do do what you can. I wrote a book, and that went down well. Um, Just to interject there, which which was which was your first one? The first one was Mister Tom, the original biography uh, I did of of, uh, of of my uncle of Tom. Yeah, um, that's what I thought. I was going to ask if that was the first one. The, yeah, the, the that... recent Cycling Legend Zero One, Tom Simpson, the illustrated book of his life, the one that I published myself and, and I'm currently selling, was published uh, right at the end of 2018. That's sort of everything I've learned since from really getting to know the people because I, I've always, I, I, I got, Mr. Tom was, you know, it was good and I'd spoke to a lot of people. I knew the family, the family was in it, of course. But whenever I met somebody that knew him, I was always wanting to talk about him because I just, you know, wanted to know more about him and, and about what, what made him up. Um, so there's everybody in there. There's comments from his rivals. There's, there's real interviews, you know, interviews with his rivals, with his teammates, with Peter Post, the, the uh, uh, great six-day rider, and they couldn't stand each other. So he's got a different imp- <laughs> a different look at Tom. So just quickly, Chris, for this particular for this book, before we sort of delve into it, I've got a few questions around the book itself. Where can people find it? Where can I, people buy it? I have. If you if you go on that website, cyclingnetwork.co.uk, yep. uh, there's also there's a list of stockists on there where it says on the top line, and also you can buy it direct from us. Excellent, and that and you ship all around the world. We ship all around the world. We sent them to Australia last week. Uh, America, we we send over, and Europe is done, done quite well in Europe. Excellent, excellent. That's what I wanted to just double check. So going into the book, obviously, it's, you've learned a lot about your uncle since you published the first book tell tell us what you've learned about him sort of personally and, and his journey in that time what, what what sort of teasers can you give us I, I learned he was really complicated um you get this idea that he was a, a very cavalier um sort of uh, he loved fast cars first thing he ever bought was an aston martin First time yeah. he made any kind of money whatsoever. His friend, Brian Robinson, who was the senior British pro in his team, San Rafael, said, you put that money away. And Brian says, uh, I went away. We were sharing a flat in um, in the Port de Clichy. In, Tom was a first-year pro. Um, and in this flat, they had a, a table, two chairs, a fridge, and a bed that they shared. That's all they had. And Brian says, one day I came home. We'd still got the same furniture, but there was a brand-new Aston Martin outside because that – you know, so you get this idea, but that, that he was went from, it went for, and then he had to sell it, of course, because he had a little bit of a bad time. He loved money. He was charming. Uh, he was very, very driven. He mm. was very scientific and controlled in his approach. You get this idea that he attacked a lot, so he won a lot of races because he was always in the break. But Helen, his wife, told me in great detail, you know, how they picked an objective and prepared for it. Um, yeah. He had to be 69 kilograms. He knew yeah. about power to weight ratio way before. Really? Way before. Way before. Um, time, yeah. yeah. So there was lots of things and lots of funny stories. And I also had found out a huge um, respect that he was held with uh, having, you know, to get to this situation where you speak to a guy like Jan Janssen, Tour of France winner in 1968. Yeah. And he starts to have tears in his eyes talking about it. Wow. And saying that the, the, the best times he ever had in cycling were with Tommy because they used to call him Tommy across there, even though he didn't like it because the Dutch and Belgians like this Ike, Tomica, like they used to call Tomica, Tom Boonen. Yes. So it's like yeah, yeah, Tom, they're yeah. Tommy. And he said, I had the best times in my cycling career with Tom. And it, it's a wonderful story. It's a, it's a, it's a tragic story because I'm saying it's a wonderful story. It's, it's a terrible story in the end. Um, it is, yeah. And he, he yeah. also found out that I also sort of realised that there was a young man here doing something nobody had ever done from Britain and there was nobody could trust and nobody could ask for advice. So, yes, he made some mistakes. And, yes, um, amphetamines played a part in his life, uh, mm. uh, played a part in his death. But he was out there making decisions that just he, he wasn't old enough to make. 
Um, well, it was trailblazing. Yeah. You know, you think about, obviously, we've got some listeners from all around the world. So just maybe we should probably go back a step and sort of, if they're not familiar, I'm sure most people are familiar with him. But, you know, he was 29, wasn't wasn't he, when, when he sadly passed when, and when he, had yeah. achieved so much in the sport from really, he was the first person from the UK to, or one of, to go and make such an impact on the continent. Well, literally, possibly the second to ever make a living at it. As part become part of the European the the peloton what wow. we call the pro peloton. Uh, Brian Robinson had won two. He'd, he was the pioneer. He'd won two stages of the Tour of France in the fifties and it was a yeah. regular part of cycling. Yeah. And then Tom came along, nineteen fifty nine, twenty one years old, and finished fourth in the World Professional Road Race Championships, the Elite Road Race Championship. There's only him and Mark Cavendish ever finished higher. That's, was, that is amazing. It, so Chris, what? Before he decided to go over to the continent, what, what what was he doing in the domestic scene in the UK? Or they just it wasn't that evolved then? It was very much based around time crowding, wasn't it? It was, yeah. I mean, there wasn't many road races. He was winning almost every road race he rode. Um, he constantly he had a, an advisor in, in England. He met a good coach in England called George Berger, who advised him to stick to the track. He, he advised him to uh, become a pursuiter. And he won, uh, they got the bronze medal at the 1956 Olympic Games just two days past his 19th birthday. But he always wanted, he'd, he'd fallen in love with cycling from when he first saw pictures, sepia pictures of Fausto Coppi and Gino Bartali in really magazines. Copy, yeah, yeah. Cut them out, put them in scrapbooks. I've got it next to me now on the shelf, his scrapbook. It's all copy, not many time trial scenes. And George Burgess said that to be a pro uh, in Europe, they look at the track, they look at pursuit as the pro, the team managers. They look at people who are fast because cycling evolved by the 50s and, and races were won with speed rather than just strength as they had been before. Yeah. So he gave himself a, a deadline of winning the World Amateur Pursuit Championships by twenty. By the time he was 21. Uh, he crashed and couldn't couldn't win that. Uh, in Paris that year in 1958 so he, he knew he had to go to live in France so the following Easter uh, he moved to France and won started winning road races in Brittany by the end of that year 59 he was fourth in the world uh, road race championships the, wow. the, the elite men's 60 he had a fantastic year 61 at 23 he won the Tour of Flanders on Flanders, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. On Flanders is his first attempt. His first attempt. I can't find him in the finishes in 1960, 1961, or the start. And 1961, he won it. Not only that, he was fifth the following year. He was third the year after in Flanders. Uh, he won Milan San Remo. He won Bordeaux Parish, which is a classic still. Bordeaux Paris, yeah, that was a, that was a classic then, wasn't it? Yeah, that's that's yeah. huge. How long is that? Uh, 365 miles, all in one go. <laughs> <laughs> It, and it comes dates back to the days when uh, road racing w- had developed. The first road race was 19, 1868, 1869. Uh, yeah. And then it was slow to get going. And then by the late 1890s, uh, race organizers were vying with each other to get the most spectacular race. And in those days, what really inspired people was distance. So they were making longer and longer races, and the the pro teams were all sponsored. The, the, all the sponsors were bike manufacturers. They encouraged the newspapers because they could say that, well, my guys won Bordeaux Paris on this bike, three hundred and sixty five miles in one go, um, and uh, it must be the best bike because it, you know, it's come through this this test. Yeah. Uh, until it came to a peak with the Tour of France, which they were considering doing as a one 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 way round, but they realised that you know it was far too far, um, and then stage racing came. Fantastic! That's such an interesting period. It's funny that obviously his scrapbooks were full of of images of of, of copy, and um, really that that sort of sixties era now is the era that we all look back with nostalgia, and it's quite a romantic era for cycling. It's a really really kick forward as a sport, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it did. It did, and and there, there was a lot of romance about them. And they, they, the top riders were. You could make good money. Tom, Tom did make good money. Uh, really? The top, yeah, the top five to ten riders made good money. Um, you know, eventually, and he'd invested it in all sorts of things uh, that was that he was going to complete after he uh, after he'd stopped racing, and he was going to even make more money because the following year he'd in 1968 he'd signed for an Italian team Salvarani which he was going to co-lead with Felice Gimondi and they doubled his salary so he'd got everything in front of him as well so he was going to leave Peugeot he was leaving Peugeot yeah Peugeot had never really treated him properly and they never got totally behind him Peugeot even in the 80s you know he just asked Sean Yates and 
um, Alan Piper, it was a very f- French team for the French. Yeah. So he wasn't happy with Peugeot at all. I mean, although he's, he's made that uh, checkered top iconic, he wanted to get out of Peugeot as soon as he could. And when the Tour of France switched to national teams again in 1967, he could. He could. Peugeot always threatened him that they wouldn't give him a con wouldn't pick him for the tour unless he signed a contract with them for the following year and he needed the tour of france every year so yeah, with it being released with it going to national teams he straight away both big italian teams maltini and salvarani were after him but uh, he, he signed for salvarani and added everything to play for oh so tragic it's such a such a shame it'd be fascinating to see what he would have achieved in in the subsequent years yeah Yes, it, uh, it, it. Well, we don't know. I, I know that Rick Van Looy. Oh, I, uh, I was. Well, I did all these interviews under the guise of doing things for Cycle Sport because I would do an interview for Cycle Sport, but I always kept the bitter Simpson back. And yeah. Van Looy, who never was very good at giving compliments, and him and Eddie Merck still hate each other. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. They they fell out years ago, and. Uh, I don't know whether it's actually hate now, but they're, they're not. They're not. They're not the best of friends. Um, yeah. But he was. He admired Tom. He said that Tom certainly could have won every classic like he did. Really? Yeah. Wow. If he did, if he did, have gone on. That's amazing. So obviously, you wrote, you wrote the the first edition yeah. uh, of the uh, Tom Simpson book, and then that that kind of obviously made it made an impact, and that sort of opened things up to you to move into, or did you write another book? Second, uh, no, what, what, happened what happened? What happened next was uh, I, I met a guy called Luke Edwards Evans, who was editor of. Uh, I met him. I made sure I met him. I, I, you know, I said, "Can I come to come and see you?" And went to Croydon to the headquarters of what was Cycling Weekly, and yeah. uh, he took me out for lunch and said, yeah, "All right, we'll try doing this. Write, write about this, and write about that." So I, I started writing for them, and then for Cycling Weekly, and then when uh, Robert Garbutt was the took over as the editor of Sachs, but the whole thing, Robert and me clicked. And I could always get him if he wanted an interview, you know, if he wanted Eddie Merckx, if he wanted so-and-so, whoever he wanted. He said, get an interview with so-and-so. And I somehow managed to do it. Um, Brilliant. And, and they, they, it, it, it evolved from there. And uh, it got to the point where Robert would let me go around Europe and, and put my expenses in because he knew I wasn't going to take the mickey with him and, um, and do anything I wanted to do, really. One at the, the races. So that's amazing. So, how long did you how long did you do that for? Sort of travel around Europe, follow the races, and um, well, I, I went and lived in the north of France for a while. We bought a small house mm. over there, and we, we yeah. moved to the, the north of France um, so I could be to get to know everybody. We were there about a year and a bit, and then uh, then I'd use that as a base when I went over there, saved on hotel bills. And uh, but at the same time. But, well, that went on until really there was there was a big restructuring at the company that Cycling Weekly was part of, and they, there was a big cut in what they put out. So there wasn't the number of magazines anymore. From five magazines, it all went down to Cycling just Cycling Weekly. Uh, and but at the same time, you see, I was I was getting contracts for writing books. Uh, yeah, DK. I wrote the complete bike book for DK Dawn and Kindersley. I wrote yeah. the bicycle repair book. For DK, um, yeah. in those days, I was doing my own contracts, and um, I, I'd sign a contract and think, "Oh, that was nice because they're paying me a nice advance." But not look at the small print of all the uh, uh, other nationalities and reprints and how much you would get for them, which I was getting nothing for. And um, the complete the cycle repair book has sold nearly well over two hundred thousand copies now in its six editions, and we're doing a seventh edition for next year. Um, wow. But I hadn't got anything like any kind of uh, return that you would think that should get. But now I, I then I got an agent, and it's a little bit better, although not as so much, not really. Still difficult, yeah. Still, still written word is difficult, isn't it? You have but to you... write a lot of stuff to make decent money. Well, and that's my, that was my next point. And you have you've what is it twenty one books on just a vast array of different cycling topics it's this is fascinating it's obviously cycling has become is obviously your passion and you've got family history in it but you know is there anything that you don't know <laughs> <laughs> no. well you can find out can't you, you always ask uh, and i do try to, to check and, and go all over the place to check uh, but I, I did i never restricted myself to just doing biographies of cyclists or just doing races or just doing racing i've done repair books i've done uh, travel books the tour climbs was uh, a book that was, uh, we tried to include every big climb that had ever been used in the Tour of France and take a picture of it. That was absolutely fantastic because they let me, I, I did that in three trips 
And he, he, I just forgot photograph. I did the photographing myself again. I, I taught myself to do a bit of photography so that that was more attractive to magazines because instead of having to pay for a journalist and a photographer, I, I could do my own basic photography as well. Uh, so I've done some books with, I mean, they're not as good as f- photography books, but they were, you know, the, there's a, there, I think there's a charm to them. I've got some uh, feedback that there was. So I did travel books as well. I've co-written stuff. I wrote the biography of the modern bike with Chris Boardman. I was lucky enough to get the job of doing that. I wrote How to Ride a Bike with Chris Hoy a couple of years ago, which was a great experience. Yeah, what um, was he like? Fantastic. Like- we wrote that in uh, five meetings in Buxton, uh, Costa Coffee. There's a little advert. For <laughs> We'd meet in that and discuss things. And I've still got the original sketches he did for weight training exercises and stuff like that. The stick man. He was a fantastic sprinter, but a very poor drawer. <laughs> very good. And one of your books that I've seen and I love is the Cycling Jerseys yeah. Uh, book. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's sold quite well. And that's, got, that's gone into three uh, four different languages, and it was one of the best-selling books in cycling books in Spain last year. Um, really, yeah, there's an Italian version, and there is a uh, a French version with the forward by Mark Maggio from the manager of FTJ, who sent me a message that said he, he he very much enjoyed it. And it's not a dry book about jerseys; it's it's about jerseys and how the the cycling jersey evolved over the years, which is yeah. an interesting subject. But yeah. it's also about some of the great riders who made those jerseys what they wore them it made them so iconic exactly that right yeah it's uh that's that's the stuff that sticks in your head from from when you're you're younger for you personally what what obviously there's going to be i'm sure you're going to say the the tour but what's your favorite race that you've covered and you've visited oh i'm i'm uh, i'm a flanders classic man yeah the tour of france got it so long isn't it it's um i I love have you ever ever covered the whole thing i've not covered the whole thing i've covered um weeks of it we we uh, once we robert garbert had the idea of sending three journalists to cover different weeks in a camper van like the um like the crowds do in following a camper yeah. van. that was a pretty gruesome i did one week surface service in that that was a pretty gruesome especially with everybody saying i'm not entering the, uh, emptying the, the chemical toilet and <laughs> i wasn't emptying on the on the grounds that i'd never used it so i was made sure yeah um so yeah but I, i've done we used to you used to just you to do a week i've never I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to do the full week, full three weeks, because uh, I used to. Usually, you get sent to do the first week, so I could come back with um with a load of, of some features for Cycling Weekly and for, for for Cycle Sport to get get it kicked off. Um, I even once interviewed Giva Hushtak when he was Prime Minister of Belgium for Cycling yeah. Weekly. Yeah, I, I thought, well, we've not had the but we've not had a Prime Minister ever in Cycling Weekly, and I knew from a mutual friend. The whole shot was a student at Ghent University, and I knew from a mutual friend that he was mad on cycling. And yeah. uh, he even, to the extent that he trained on the Kupka, the indoor track, against Sports Palace in the winter. Wow. Um, and I was able to say, I know a friend of yours called, oh, well, and he gave me an interview. His bodyguards said, bro, we, uh, we got talking. <laughs> That's amazing. And how, how, you know, years covering the tour, how, how has the sport evolved and developed just through the years that you've covered it? It, well, it was getting very. It was. I mean, it's always been serious. It's always a. It's a. It's a grown-up sport, and it's always been. But it's become. There's certainly more of a distance between the riders and 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 writers now. Which really? some may say that's healthy. I don't know. It, it's it's healthy if you want to criticise. It's not healthy if you want to get in-depth stories with people. Um, yeah. And the PR people that have come in and be got in between cyclists and, and and writers a bit have cut um i think have cut some of the familiarity of, of it off and they you know they, they've tended to they, they, they've tended to be the sort of filter that everything goes through which is is to me not a good it's not a step forward for readers it might be but a step a forward hard, for the it also makes it harder you know you see you hear Johnny Vorter's come out and say that we need more heroes within the sport. We need more personalities for, mm-hmm. for supporters to follow and, and fall in love with. If you've got that barrier, it makes it harder. You know, in a, When the sport's becoming more professional anyway, it makes it harder to, to see those personalities, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And I think PR people have got to th- look at creating heroes. And I think some of them do a great job. The, the 
the quick step guys are, are, are really good. Right, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm a bit more out of it now than than I was. Although I would like to, do, I would like to develop Cycling Legends as a website, as a as a more of a, an online magazine. Um, okay, you know, and I'm not off. I think there's a chances for other magazines. I think there's a a model of way of doing magazines now that the the old model for me of a magazine supported by trade adverts or adverts is is over and newsstand sales particularly because they yeah. they, they, they you know they're not doing newsstand sales anymore uh, everybody can do their own adverts on on social media or their own websites but i think there's a way of making a quality magazine uh, with low overheads and i'm looking for investors one day maybe that's a little dream well, Chris, I've I've got a few ideas on this myself, so maybe we should have a follow up yeah, conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have I have spoken to people who are who are interested in this. It's the same way that we did. We're able to produce cycling at a reasonable. There's no adverts or anything. There's nobody backing it. We were able yeah. to put um to put a really quality stuff the thing together for the World Championships for the UCI World Championships, and we're well under all the other program manufacturers. Yeah. So there there is a there is a way of doing it, but I'm not going to reveal it over the. I've got a couple of ideas as well but anyway go, going back to cycling the sport obviously you've seen the evolution it's become far bigger far bigger here in the UK far bigger following given the structure of cycling do you have any views in terms of with this period of lockdown how the sport can come out the other side from a structural perspective from a financial perspective is viability it's it's difficult isn't it it i mean i i I'm like like i'm not looking too far in the future you can't yes we've got to come through this like we come through everything but yeah to me there's the the it's a political thing or, or biological thing now you, you, we've got to have a vaccine yeah. what well, a vaccine's a game changer isn't it everything could go back to us as it was yeah uh, exactly. uh, and i don't know enough about epidemiology or uh, d- disease transference but to, to me, that's that's the answer. And um, if there's a vaccine for other things, there, there there has to be for this. And governments around the world, I don't know whether they are doing or not doing. They should be putting every bit of money they can at the moment to curing this problem, and then we can get on together and cure other problems and save cycling. But going forward, I, I'm, it's it's a bit gloomy at the moment. That looking looking forward, whether the Tour of France will take place, I don't know. Does the Tour of France want to be the vehicle that? brings it back or spreads it that's a fear that's a fear isn't it yeah the potential risk of that i mean um i've mentioned on on this pod before i think if the tour does go ahead it, it could be a fascinating spectacle given there hasn't been any racing and theoretically everyone should be fresh and raring to go it could yeah it could be a really interesting addition although they've done that that, that much on zwift i'm worried that they're going to crash at the first corner <laughs> And yeah, everybody's, exactly. and also everybody's flying fit as well. They're going to be. I mean, guys are riding, riding twelve hours and in a day. I know, you know and they're going to be know. itching to go. It's quite a dangerous situation, actually. I, I would, I would have thought testosterone and being deprived and cooped up. It's uh, well, that's it. I think you know, week one of the tour is always a bit twitchy and and, and crash ridden. Um, so it could be, it could be quite feisty the first first week, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, but I don't. I I have not got an answer to this. As greater brains than me, um, on what what the future of cycling is, I, I mean, there is going to be a future. The, the the sport of cycling. Conversely, on the other side, cycling's got a huge role to play in every, people's everyday lives. And yes. If, and if the cities and the not just our government will not get too political. But the, 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 it's the cities that are doing this. Uh, they've just revealed the the, bike, the active transport plan for South Yorkshire. And it's inspired. I can could go and do business in Sheffield, Barnsley and Doncaster, or my big three South Yorkshire city, cities and towns, without hardly crossing a road when this is finished, really? which is, is fantastic. It's Nirvana. And, and, and I'm writing a book now about safe cycling in the city and it, we, the research is that most people's urban journeys are two and a half miles and they are doable on a bike so doable on a bike so long as there, there is the structure to make people feel safe which is the big barrier that's the, is that first journey isn't it it's getting everyone to take that first journey and and i think everyone has a part to play in that current cyclists and mm. car drivers but you're right i think so many journeys are under is it two and a half miles did you say yeah i think so yeah urban, I mean, ju- urban get- journeys in not not from out of town into town but uh, journeys when you're in a, a town or a city across the town i'd be great if we can see a real 
cultural shift around the bicycle i mean i've seen it out on the bikes on the out on the bike around here just i love all the old bikes i've i haven't seen since sort of mid 90s that have been pulled out of sheds and people on those and it's just brilliant to see and and couples of all ages riding families riding if we could sort of push that that would be a, a fantastic achievement out the back of this crazy period Yes, there would be, um, as Dame Sarah's story, that it was one of the figureheads for the South Yorkshire uh, plan, said, you know, this has been a terrible thing, but something good could come out of it. And something that would help change the na- nation's health. You know, we might get yeah. back to where children were, were like when I was young, when we, you could have sugar when I was young because you burnt it off. Yeah, you, you know, got out and exercised and... Yeah, exactly that. And it's funny how we've moved away from it. I don't know if you heard the, an episode I, I launched last week with, with Shannon Bufton in Beijing, just talking about the historical cycling culture within Beijing as a city. Is, you know, everyone used to cycle everywhere and they kind of lost that way a little bit, although it's starting to come back again. And I think ever, there are lessons to be learned all around the world where it is a key mode of transport and it is um, embraced. And yeah, I just hope that the the car drivers, certainly I feel that cars are driving a bit faster with the quieter roads, or they certainly were. So hopefully it's just that awareness. It's education and awareness, really, isn't it? It's education and awareness. And also remember, every time you get a car driver on a bike, he becomes a cyclist as well. So you can always tell, there's a joke about how far, how, how close passing, isn't it? Uh, yeah. You know, a, a metre and a half is, is res- two, the close pass is close. A metre and a half is respect because that's what they've seen you and respect you. If they go over the other side of the road, they're a cyclist. Yeah, yeah, because exactly. That's so true. The, it's so true. Because they realise, and the so more true. there is buzz, the less there is is them so i think once you are a cyclist and you've added a few close passes and you you, you suddenly are aware of um of, of cyclists and a big thing what i say about road safety and it's in my book is is work with people eye contact and when you are in traffic be definite don't wobble don't stay to one side if you need to turn right indicate signal move because car drivers yeah. can cope with that they can cope with somebody who's definite they might not well, like it but they can cope with it well you've got to be a you're a vehicle on the road ultimately and um you need to act that way and and that's the confidence piece it's that weird it's that you need to find that weird sweet spot it's those that are not confident enough i worry about and then at the other end of the spectrum it's those that are overconfident yes to find the middle ground and when you wrote the book with with chris boardman did you discuss this topic with him at all because he's doing some fantastic things particularly in manchester around addressing bikes on, on on the road isn't he Yes, yes, a little bit, yeah. Um, and he's a fantastic thing. I mean, God, Chris Boardman should be Prime Minister. Um, yeah. He's, he should really go for Parliament because he's so, all his argument, he, he's so well read. He seems yeah. to remember everything he's ever read. And yeah. he, there's there's nobody better at putting across, I mean, it's quite frightening. I'm, I'm supposed to be a journalist, I'm supposed to be a writer and be able to put something across. Chris can put things across. He gets right to the point straight away. He's not afraid to state his mind. He's always got reasoned arguments. I love the story when he was given Project Project Bradley, when they, they had Bradley Wiggins as a, as a young lad who was potential Olympic gold medalist, but he just couldn't make him produce. And uh, he got he got Brad Wiggins to put everything down on paper and prompt, he was going to take him from where he was now to an Olympic gold medal and uh, went through his homework, crossed it all out with a red pen. <laughs> oh, really? Because, yeah, because it wasn't. And uh, for a while, Brad Wiggins says this, I hated him. Every time I sent this thing in, it'd come back with all these comments. And, and, and Chris Boardman says now that I, I wondered if I was putting him off. But it worked. He got, his, he got him to line up all his thoughts. And Chris's thoughts are so lined up. And he's not afraid to take a stance like he does with helmets. He's got a reason. You know, helm, people saying, oh, helmets should be compulsory. It's a diversion from the true thing about road safety, which yeah. is separating cyclists off from uh, other road users. And, and he, you know, he states that. And he argues with with cyclists. He'll argue. And he, you can't, you, you, there's no chink in what his argument is. And he, he's took that from his cycling career. Uh, he's took that from, it's he, he, run it through his secret squirrels when he was working for British Cycling and getting the latest things together. He's, he took it into his own business. Yeah. Form, he formed what the broad, Boardman brand was going to be without yeah. waiver. And he did it. And I've I've got tremendous admiration for him. Yeah, I know he's, I think he's a great guy. Obviously, for for me on a personal level, Barcelona '92 was where I first noticed him on that Lotus bike, and then his subsequent move across the Tour de France. That's how I fell fell in love with cycling. Was was down to one man really. I was sort of 
nine, nine, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, uh, 11-year-old boy. And uh, yeah, it was an amazing, an amazing journey, those sort of mid-90s and him and the tour. But then he so modestly will say that he could never have, it would never have been a pro rider if he'd had to do it the same way as Tom Simpson and Barry Hoban did and Sean Yates before and gone yeah. uh, to France and had to come through the fr- French amateur road system yeah. because he said he was not, he wasn't, a, 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 you know, he had this one thing, this one quality uh, that yeah. he used to perfection and rang the neck of it. Of, of being able to ride a time trial so precisely, especially the faster, the prologue ones. And he, his career came at a time when winning any stage at the Tour de France, if you'd won the prologue before, you certainly weren't set for life. But you won the prologue in 1992, 1993, and you were in that age, any stage of the Tour de France. The Tour de France has become bigger than anything before. Because in the 60s, you know, a stage winning the Tour de France didn't necessarily guarantee future success or even a contract for the following year. It was one of many other races. And now it's wow. it was preeminent, and 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 he was able to uh, to exploit his talent and be well the first of a revi- of a revival, and 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 it all led on what he learned. He put into British cycling. It all helped to build what the, what we have now. Well, he opened the 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 gateways, really, didn't he? It was, yeah, uh, he- yeah. And you could see this. You, you could see this. Uh, it, it used to. Um, it snowballed when Brad Wiggins started to have success. You, you were speaking to juniors. It would say, "I used to do those rides for Cycling Weekly. A ride with one a week. But, you know, we used to pick a pick a cyclist uh, and say, well, take us on your your favourite tra- training ride on a rest day.' And uh, there was kids like Adam Blythe and Matt Rowe, uh, Luke Rowe. In in it really when they were I, I first did them when they were seventeen year olds. They were saying, "Yeah, I want to win Tour of Flanders. Yeah, I want to win Paris Roubaix." Now, but it hasn't yeah. happened for Adam. But Luke Rowe's got a a Paris Roubaix possibly in him but they were saying that then whereas a junior from 10 years before wouldn't have dared say that no exactly it's that it's that belief isn't it yes. and and it's that it's really interesting I listened to a, a rugby podcast at the, at the weekend and they were talking about the structure of how you fund sport and they were basically comparing the RFU putting huge amount of money into developing grassroots rugby Whereas in New Zealand, they just focus on, they put most of the money into the All Blacks. Mm-hmm. And it's that, to, to your point, it's that they get a far better grassroots rugby take up when their men's team successful. It's that, it's that, and their women's team successful. It's, it's that inspiration. So mm-hmm. when you see riders like, um, well, all, all, the, all the successful riders, that encourages more people to get out on their bikes and yeah that, and, i think that's the way to do it. i think it should it should be top loaded because a kid it's no good spending lots of money uh, money on the juniors yeah they need some support and some help now and again but you've got to give the good bikes as they go on it's always something to strive for people what can't achieve until they've it takes a very singular person to achieve something that nobody else has yeah you've got to have complete self-belief and a, a real drive once somebody else has achieved it once Brad Wiggins had won the Tour of France, well, you know, we British Grand Tour wins it's 10 now, isn't it? Yeah. And we, you, you, 10 years ago, not 10 years ago, where are we now? Yeah, 10 years yeah, ago, 10 you years were talking, ago, really? to, talking talk to pros like Barry Holman, and he won't mind me saying this because he'd be the first to congratulate Dave Brailsford and all that's, all that's been done, would say Team Sky, and they're going to win the Tour of France in five years. I can't see it. Who? Who's going to win it? I can't see it. Can't and, see it happening. And it did. It took Brad to win it, and then the door opened. Yeah, yeah. It's been an amazing um, decade, I suppose, for yeah. for British cycling. They, they can't win monuments, though, can they? <laughs> yeah. What's What's your view on that? I suppose there's more variables. It's harder to manage. Maybe? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not something you can break down into into state. I mean, David Brailsford and the whole project of cycling is is you started with the track because it's physics, isn't it? If you go, if you put this amount of power in and your your CD, your your aerodynamic profile is only such and such, you will go at this speed. Yeah. And then you can do that with the Tour of France because if you put that amount of power, you only weigh this much. You climb at such and such a rate. And if that rate, if so many VAM is your, your vertical ascended meters is whatever an hour. You'll win the Tour of France, you yeah. know, as long as as long as you stay out of trouble and you've got a good team that 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 studies you. There's more variables than that, but uh, class. This is why I love it. We're going back to this one day racing. The classics are a proper old bike race. Gloves off. Yeah. Anything happens. Anything. Yeah. Can happen, any tactic. It, yeah. 
Your Tour of France is simply a staged grand tour now. Is the two, number one tactic is don't lose it. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't try it. anything that loses Climbing. it. Yeah. Manage your losses and then exploit your... Bradley Wiggins did it perfect. He managed the mountains and he was lucky there was too long time trials that year. Yeah, um, exactly. And that's 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 what they're doing. Calculate it. You can calculate food and stuff like that. But, but classics are old-fashioned bike racing. There's somebody says go... And at the end of the day, you've got a winner, and anything happens in between. And it's a lot team, hard scrap. Yeah, we, in, in the Austin Sky, I've always tried to control them, and uh, you'll hear the old classic. I've watched them with Barry, Barry Hope, and he's going, "Why are Sky riding? Why are Sky riding? Just wait, just ghost, just let Quick Step ride, let so and so ride." Well, talking about Quick Step, I mean, just sensationally successful in the one day races conversely could be you know how, how do they do it it is i mean it's their their goal isn't it and you have to be a belgian um if a belgian kid if you uh, was talking to somebody about a, asking a cyclist they'll be asking them if they've done the tour of flanders rather than the tour of france yeah. um so they are their be all and end all um it's their dna i suppose a little bit like the all blacks i suppose yeah and they know how to win them and they've yeah. got they've got i mean de Koenig, it's not quick step anymore. It's De Koenig. Have must have five riders who could win Flanders or Roubaix. Uh, well, sensational talent within that team. It's yeah. unbelievable. And and that's that that's that's how you do it. But they they know how to win them, and they use the right. They use the uh, uh, they they use those tactics best, and they use their strengths, and they just they just know their way around those races. They do. They put themselves in the right position, and they um, to coin Matthew Heyman's famous famous quote. They just keep riding, don't they? Yeah. 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 I mean. Yeah, they never break. That's what Lefebvre says. He said that about Tom Moonen. Is is Tom Moonen? He might bend, but he never breaks. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And we might have some um, autumn classics this year with the revised calendar. That could be quite fun with the weather. Yeah, it could. Um, I don't know what what when they're going to be. Uh, it'll seem strange, and it'll seem strange that everything gets back to normal. But uh, I, I'm all for change, and it's it's going to be interesting. It may be different in that because the season does tend to peter out a little bit, doesn't it? The the World Championships have been a little bit divided in my opinion by making them a bit later um you think so i think so a little bit yeah i, I think it's because it's, people are really having to extend the year for it uh, to me the, it's not so much they've been developed value to me the tour of france has become all consuming and to... it's so so big that it, it sucks everything in for, from cycling and it, it drains people and i think the other grand tours are a little bit getting the same way but that's evolution it's it's evolving it's what people must want because uh, you know people they don't they don't they, these things don't become great by accident do they uh, yes it's, it's, yeah so you know but it'd be nice to see well i don't know whether we're going to get a lombardy but uh i mean that's a, it's just an absolutely special race is it, isn't it? yeah magic race yeah I, I well i suppose lombardy could be in its original slot potentially yeah that's yeah. all confusing it is very confusing. They haven't moved the date, have they? It's in no, they haven't original... moved the date. They don't need to yet, I don't think. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But, it's, I mean, it's evolution. This is this, this is cycling as it is now, and it's very popular. There's thousands of millions of people out on the road, so whatever they're doing is right, is the right thing to do at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Something's going right. So let's long may that continue. And it's, um, I see lots of cycling businesses are absolutely uh, thriving. Yeah, I mean, that's, 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 again, that's from... from uh, I mean, you... you uh, if you're in the cycle trade now, you really you really should be should be making money because, uh, you know, the, the fact that people want in bikes, like, there isn't enough bikes to go around at the moment. So bike shops have had a, a big um, shot in the arm and uh, in, so have family-run businesses, which have really, you know, sometimes have struggled. It's been great for them because, well, these new cyclists that are going to come in need these local shops and local family business because there's a very often a wealth of hard-won knowledge in them and they know how to keep a customer as well. So they will look after you. So I'd encourage anybody yeah, exactly. to support support your local bike shop. Um, support your local bike shop. Support local generally. And I think with a bit of time to reflect, given the lockdown situation, it makes you appreciate just the, the added value you get from local businesses that you can't necessarily put a monetary value on. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, the, 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 to me, the future of the, the whole world is that we can, we can no need to travel in the same way we were. You know, the, the Zoom. I mean, I've just discovered Zoom interviews, Skype interviews. I'm still interviewing cyclists, but we do it on Skype. It's great. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's much easier. It's nice to see people. It's nice to, to, to be in their presence. But, you know, if we can cut down on the number of journeys. I got to a point once 
when I, I was on a plane every week, which isn't that's 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 a waste, isn't it? Sustainable, it's not healthy either. Not healthy. It's, uh, not healthy for the planet. No. Yeah, I think we kind of opened this this Pandora's box of globalization, and we just everything sort of went in one direction and maybe this is a, a chance to sort of have a look at that and find a bit of equilibrium and a better balance yeah and the and the bike's got a great place to sorry chris sorry and the bike's got a big part to play in that yeah let's hope so where's your favorite place in the world to ride Ooh, um it's it, it, i i do love it i love it in provence uh i love tuscany um, I like Belgium. I like Belgium because I, I, I just, I mean, I love these gritty places. Um, yeah. I come from mining villages and, and uh, I, I'm quite attracted to places where the uh, all heavy industries died, but where there's steel, still steel mills and stuff like that. And the, the, I like the uh, the Ardennes. So I'm, I'm very gregarious. I just love to ride my bike. I actually like the feeling of riding a bike. Jean Bobet, great author, was a good cyclist, one for his niece, great author, Louise Ons. Uh, brother and Louise on one three Tour of France. He describes the act of cycling as voluptuous, which I think yes. just, it's, it's like a warm bath. It just once you you know once you've got a little bit of fitness, and I think now I look back to my own racing. I used to be on the way to races and thinking, what's what's down that road and what's there, and uh, it was almost like a good ride spoiled. You know that you've got all these people bothering that you've got to try and compete with and keep up with. I just love riding a bike. It's it's glorious. It's it, it. I hope I can keep continuing doing it for. I've got a friend who's in his 80s and he rides 100 miles every Thursday and every Sunday. Wow. And th- four times a year, he's not doing it at the moment. He rides from Weatherby to Whitby and back for fish and chips. That's which... utterly inspirational. And I think you're right. There's no better to, better way to see the world on the bike. And hopefully, you know, all these new people on the bike are 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 learning that now which is amazing and with e-bikes as well you know there's a future there that that can get people cycling who thought it wasn't possible or they just weren't able to and that's a whole nother market potentially opening up oh yeah i mean e-bikes are selling well and i think they're a the great boon uh, to cycling e-bikes uh one of the things i've said in this book i'm writing are, are great for short journeys around cities e-bikes are also because one of the big problems, let's face it, one of the big problems of riding a bike is you're going to work on it. You get a bit sweaty, you know, you, 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 or, or if you're riding longer, you might have to get some uh, special equipment. But e-bikes, you can just have your normal clothes on, hop on the bike, yeah. little journey. Um, the electric motor helps you. And you're still moving your legs. You're still putting some effort in as well. Like you're still burning the calories. Uh, exactly. And you're more likely to burn more because you're more likely to ride further and the, the, i can see nothing but positive and it's fantastic as well on the other end of the spectrum where you've got pro riders uh i went to a presentation last year where ribble gave brian robinson uh a, an e-bike because he's well he's 89 now he's going to be 90 soon wow. and uh, he wasn't riding his bike as well you know he, he, he lives uh, in west yorkshire so it's hilly and they gave him this bike and a week later, I saw him at Velo Retro in Cumbria, where he was a guest of honour. And uh, his brother-in-law was come, his, his son-in-law was complaining that uh, he says, "Oh, he's, he's turning this motor on when we get up to a climb, You're going up the hill at ten miles an hour in the Lake District." So, and he, he was he was like a kid, eighty-nine-year-old kid. His eyes were shining, Brilliant. and he said, "He says it's going to keep me riding for another ten years." This. Which is beautiful. beautiful. Isn't that so great? Yeah, exactly. And I, I have, you know, hopefully I can ride well into my uh, autumn years with, with the kids as well, with yeah. the help of an e-bike. So, yeah. 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 That's Brilliant. fantastic. And, and, and Eddie Merckx has got one, but don't tell anybody. Has he really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A secret between us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a secret between us. And have you spoken to him about it? Does he love it? My cousin did. He, he told my cousin he'd got one of those uh, secret ones that um, Tom's daughter. He told her that uh, he said he said because he goes around the world. You know, people want to go for a ride with Eddie Merckx. He says, but they don't. They don't realise. You know how old I am. And they they, <laughs> they he says they think oh la course en tête. He says they leave me at the front and then just change positions. <laughs> Riding sixty k every day. He says, you know, yeah. I've had operations. I've, my heart's a bit strange. So um, he says, I, I, I've had a little bit of help, and it's, I think it's one of those secret ones that the the Belgian girl was was thrown out of cycle. I really can't even. Hidden motor, even yeah. better. This was oh, a, this brilliant. was a, this was a couple of years ago. Maybe he's more open about it now. Yeah, well, I think he could get away with it. He's uh, what what an athlete he was, eh? 
Oh, fantastic. And one of the, I mean, if you ask me what one of the most memorable interviews I ever did was, I've done a few couple now, but one I spent a whole morning with him and it was just uh, amazing uh, finding out about him and and finding out he said some he said some uh, one thing that's always stuck me with me as i as always ask naive questions because i am a bit in awe of these guys even even at my age uh because of what they could do you know i mean what did he you know he won the tour of france by 20 minutes he <laughs> Still gets me that. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. And he, he was what he was twelve minutes in front, and then he got another twelve minutes, just like that. And I says, "Well, how, why did you do that?" He said, because I could. He said, yeah, I was what? just, I was just so strong, and I thought, well, I'm going. He'd also his teammate had pissed him off as well, so he wanted to teach him a lesson. Um, but he, I said to him, "What's it like being Eddie Merckx?" Meaning, you know, this for this, you've done everything that everybody would ever want to do. And he says, "It's very strange. You were, uh, I go around the world." And I'm confronted with a young man I've got nothing in common with. You know, this man I was. He says, and everybody wants me to ask me about him, but nobody asks about me now, and I'm a completely different person. Wow, which that's quite sad. takes us round to that sadness and that difficulty with retiring. Yeah. Um, I'm not sorry for him because he's, he's made a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, I know, but that's... But um... it is, a, yeah, it, 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 it takes you back. It, it takes you. You're taken aback by that, and you see that yes, it must be a weird life because you are constantly confronted with this young man. The rest of us aren't. Nobody remembers what we. <laughs> I was like when I was thirty. Well, we've got some exciting young talent coming through as well, haven't we? With Van der Poel and Remco and and these guys coming through, it's yeah. going to be a fascinating. One thing as well, they are very much grounded. They they. One thing I'm always impressed about cyclists, young cyclists, is they know their cycling history. Uh, maybe because it is a family thing. I mean, if you think of um, if you think of Matthew van der Poel's lineage, his dad Adri and, and grandfather Raymond Pulido, um, he mm. was brought in. I don't know. I've not met Remco Evan Paul, so I don't know what he know, knows about it. And he was a footballer first, wasn't he? But they tend he to find it. out about it. This is a big body of literature, I suppose, to read, and and uh, they're aware of the past of the races. That's why they they want to win these big races because they're aware of the past. Them, yeah. Yeah, and Matthew's very old. I was reminded of he's very old school. He um, there was a couple of years ago in the Coxeda Cyclocross. This impressed me. Was uh, and it tells you what being a pro is. Was was cancelled because of high winds. So it was you know a dreadful day, and uh, everybody else would be oh keep warm and go home and live to fight another day and we'll start training tomorrow. He, he rode back to Holland to just across the border from the Belgian coast over the north of Antwerp and in. Just south of the the north of the Belgian border where they live, two hundred and twenty kilometers in in November because he hadn't got his cycle across, and that's the kind of dedication and also love of cycling and enthusiasm that you've got to have. Loves it, but so driven, knows what it takes with yeah. the family connections, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. or perhaps his dad made him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not getting in the car, son. <laughs> you can cycle yeah. home. Yeah, I can believe Very that. Good. Chris, thank you so much for, for taking the time this afternoon to, to join us. It's been quite a fascinating discussion. We will make sure that we get the, the websites in the show notes Thanks. so people can find it. And if we're okay to, to share your email as well, if anyone's got any yeah. questions they yeah. want to pose to you or, or, or anything like that, or you want Chris for, for speaking engagements or, or the like. Yes, we can get, I've, I've, get, I've got quite a few club dinners if they happen and, uh, and whatever, and cafes. When we, uh, there is going to be a Cycling Legends 2. Tom Simpson illustrated book was, I also got to say there was 50 pictures in that book. It was 167 pictures altogether. 50 pictures just of Tom has never been published before. So it, you oh, know, wow. it's, worth, it's worth buying it for that it's only 20 quid and uh there will be a cycling legend zero two and i'm not revealing the title of that but it's uh it's it's different very special again the whole thing of cycling legends my principle is to tell the real story not not have any kind of filter not trying to prove anything we're not trying to do anything we're just telling the story it'll always be by told by the people who were there and did it um, yeah. I don't like writing where it goes in through a filter of the writer and, and they present it in, in a way that they see in their mind that, that's a structure. I only want, I only like to write about, my writing's always got a lot of quotes in it because it's always got to be the people who were there and seen it. They're the people whose opinion and accounts matter. It'll always be the unpublished picture if we can. Uh, it's so easy to just go to press sports and all these big reserves and put the, this picture in your mouth. So you end up saying, seeing the same picture of Eddie Merckx 20 times. I'm trying not to do that. Obviously, you've got to use 
some photo agencies. But I just want it to be that bit special and and have uh, and go to the nth degree to make a really good product. And and the 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 cycling legends two yet to be announced. But when yeah. when can we expect an announcement oh, on that? Oh, well, I'm hoping it's going to be out by the end of this year. So we'll expect an announcement sort of when I know it's going to be there and I know when we're going to get it out and I know when I'm going to be able to take it down the road. Um, so hopefully by August we can we can ex- Will you let us know? We can we'll let, let you, know. On we'll We've got some other, then, a couple of other, we do standard books as well. And we've got a couple of other, t- we've got at least one title that will be coming out this year and then possibly two more next year. Excellent. Well, yeah, do let us know so I can be aware whether I need to put it on my, my Christmas list. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. A little, as you can see, I keep rattling on. I love talking about bikes. And no, it's I... fascinating. I reckon we could, we could speak all day. In fact, I'd love to get you back on in not too distant future. We could uh, maybe speak about the, um, the book that's about to be launched. Okay. Yeah. And I do have a, a, my, a regular cycling show on it. I know it's a rival podcast. You, do you mind if uh, just Velocast? No, please. Velocast. Yeah. yeah. Velocast um is is the podcast i have my own show on uh at once a month and we also do an interview show and um, we've we've had alan piper and barry hoban on that i've only been doing it this this year for a few months now but i love it i think podcasting is great i mean it's another it's another way of getting cycling across there i really enjoyed it I've been thoroughly enjoying doing these and it's I've just loved speaking to so many different people, different backgrounds, all connected with cycling. It's been fantastic. So I'll get the Velocast link from you and we'll also put that in the show notes so people can find it along with uh, Cycling Legends and your own personal website as well. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Lovely to talk You're to you. You're a gentleman, Chris. Really good to chat. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast. And more importantly, don't forget to download the Unfound app and join cyclists from around the world on the hub. We'll see you on there.